0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we're going to have a very special podcast where we're going to try and get to know the new Editor-in-Chief of Politico Europe. We're going to talk about his plan for Politico um, and uh, because he's uh, been a brilliant journalist who's been based in Asia for a long time, we're going to look at how Europe looks from the outside and maybe even if we've got some time talk about Europe's relations with China. I'm very happy to welcome Jamil Andolini. I first came across Jamil when he was the FT bureau chief in Beijing, I think it was about a decade ago. At that time, he was one of the most brilliant Western interpreters of the black box of Chinese politics and had a talent for bringing out interesting stories, finding uh, incredible scoops, and really bringing them to life in a way that not many uh, Western journalists were able to do with stories about China. I think, I'm not sure if this is right, but I seem to remember that you have a slightly hidden past as well, Jimmy. I think you're one of the only journalists I know who started out their career as a model rather than as a writer. Is that right? Uh, uh,
1: Very, very flattering. Thank you, Mark. Um, I wouldn't say I started a career as a model. I was a part-time model in uh in shanghai while i was doing other things so uh yeah it doesn't really count i was i was though a uh snowboard instructor which i think is uh yeah and i really was doing that full-time for a while uh, that's, that's pretty important. cool.
0: It sounds like you could almost become president of Canada with that as your kind of, uh, or prime minister of Canada with that on your CV. Anyway, thank you very much for joining, Jamil. Um, so you've joined Politico Europe quite recently um, after uh, a long time uh, writing about Asia. Um, can you tell us a bit about what attracted you to, to, to doing this job and also what your vision is for, uh, for the future of, of Politico Europe? Because I think many people will be interested in it because they're, you know, right across the continent, people tend to start the day off by reading their national newspapers and people talk a lot about how there's no European public sphere. To the extent that there is one, I think it's probably in the pages of the financial times and and with the with the daily briefs from um, from politico i think those are some of the the very few things that all decision makers across europe will will read in common every morning
1: yeah and that's really uh what we're what we're trying for i'd say that we i think you're absolutely right there isn't uh per se a public sphere a sort of uh, a town a town square for europe uh at least in the media and i think that's what politico already is um but can be even much more in the future and that's what we're what we're hoping for i think um when i look at politico uh it's it's very much dominates the the Brussels bubble, but where I want us to be is the really truly pan-European uh, political news source, and and I think we're we're close to that, and I think we can easily achieve that in the next few years. So um, you're right. I've spent 21 years in China, not just Asia, but China, uh, including Hong Kong. Um, my uh, I spent 15 years at the Financial Times. Uh, the last 15 years. And the last six of those, I was the Asia editor of the Financial Times. So I was overseeing all of the Financial Times' coverage in the region. Uh, Not the most obvious next step in my career to go uh, to move to Brussels, where, frankly, I'd never been to Brussels. I'd been through it on a train once uh, from Amsterdam to Paris, but I'd never actually gotten off that train or or (laughs) spent any time whatsoever in Brussels. Um, So moving to Brussels from Hong Kong, and joining Politico. Uh, in my sort of opening op I guess, letter from the editor, I, I described it as leaving a symphony orchestra and joining a rock band. And that is kind of how it feels. You know, the FT is 133 years old. It's got... You know it's this amazing, incredible uh news organization uh that's has been around for a very long time, very well established. And Politico Europe is only six barely six years old. Uh Politico, the parent in the US, or the original uh parent in the US is only 15 years old in January. It'll be 15 years old. I mean, so so it's a very different proposition. It's it's much more of a startup mentality, um, but but what really attracted me, I have to say, is is that sense of uh, ambition. They have just really grand ambitions, uh, especially now that all of Politico is owned by Axel Springer. Um, uh, talk about ambition! Uh, mm-hmm. Axel Springer is is moving fast and uh, and wants to uh, you know to grow very fast, and that's very exciting. Uh, and and it's this potential. That's that's uh, you know I think that they've done some amazing things in a very short period of time, Politico, and. Uh, I'm excited to join at this moment as they go to the sort of
0: next level. So you said that part of the goal is to become a real pan-European operation. I mean, at the moment you've got offices in Paris, London and Berlin, as well as Brussels. I think there are about hundred journalists working across those different places. Is part of your idea to to expand the geographical coverage or is it just going deeper mainly in the places where you already have um, a presence or how, how do you see that happening? all of the above
1: uh, no so what I'd say is uh, we do have reporters although we don't have uh, you know big bureaus in every um, in every member state across Europe we do have reporters stringers and uh, and staff members and people spread out across across the continent already uh, I would say that we want to do a better job I, I what we what we do is a very good job of covering Brussels and the European Union uh, Commission and Council and the various strands of it um, and we we do a pretty good job of covering each of uh, the sort of major ma- uh, member states but what we I think can do even better is connecting the two so it's like we're very good at the sort of as as our founder John Harris said, likes to say, you know we're the, we're the very good at covering the, the the village square, the village news, but but what we need to do is connect up all those villages and connect up all those towns uh, to each other, and that that's where I think we can really um, make a difference. Uh, yeah, so so I think we're already probably the premier political news source across Europe, but we can be you know the dominant absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely dominant source, I would say, for political news. And and frankly, now that we're both the US, uh, our US colleagues and you know a US company and and European company are both owned by Axel Springer, I I actually think this is we're on the way to being a global, uh, truly global powerhouse when it comes to politics uh, in the future. So, so
0: what are the the big political stories that you want to go after. I remember when we first met, um, I'm not sure if it was right at the beginning, but quite soon on you found this incredible story in China about Bushi Lai, this um, larger than life political figure who ended up getting in real trouble. But in fact, many of the things he did um, were really interesting insight into the future of Chinese politics. Xi Jinping followed a lot of the Bushi Lai playbook. uh, but you you got your kind of teeth into that before many other people did, and you really um, blew life into it. What are the equivalent stories in Europe that you're going to be going after in the next couple of years? I mean, look, I'm it, it's a little hard for me to
1: say since I'm coming straight out of Asia. Um, uh, we have such a talented team of reporters and editors, so they'd be the people. You know, I'd need to check in with them before I start sort of saying, right, we're going to cover this, we're going to cover that. But I do think, back to your earlier point in the in your introduction, I do think that my experience covering uh, such an opaque place as, as you know, an opaque structure as the Chinese Communist Party does stand me in good stead to cover the European Union for one, but also to to appreciate the complexity of the of the you know the european continent and the and the stories that are that are out there i would say that my status as an outsider if you like to coming into brussels allows me to step back and say that's a really amazing story whereas perhaps someone who spent their whole career covering europe might be like well everyone knows that that's sort of a uh, the, the sort of curse of the expert if you like i saw this all the time actually in covering asia and covering china You have People who'd been like me in China for 20 years, uh, spoke the language, had seen everything that had come in the last couple of decades. And you tend to then start to write for other experts and you tend to then start to write for, uh, for you know, you tend to not see anything as very new. You've seen it all before. And so that's a bit of a curse and, and it's a bit uh, dangerous as a reporter. You've got to remember that not every single one of your readers and the people you're trying to reach is a... Complete expert in every topic that you are. So I think that I see that as an advantage. Um, on it, on as you know, on on your question about specific topics and stories, I'll be guided by our reporters. Uh, i'm not a frontline reporter anymore i'm i'm the editor-in-chief so uh i know what a great story is i know when it when i see it and uh i'll be relying on our excellent team to to identify those stories for us and and i will push those and uh and resource those and and make sure that we do the best job um a small example actually this is something that's happening right now um one of our veteran reporters david hershenhorn is actually with the Ukrainian military on the border of, uh, in the Don on the border of the front lines uh, right now. And that's uh, something a little bit new for, I think, Politico Europe. We haven't done a lot of that kind of frontline war war corresponding uh, in the past, but uh, david is very experienced from his previous roles at the new york times he's i'm i'm confident he'll stay safe which is the obviously always the most important thing when it comes to stories like this but i'm also uh, pretty clear that i think this is a very very important story and it needs to be properly reported it can't just be done from kind of a, a nice cushy office in brussels or or by going to kiev and talking to people in suits i do think that great reporting requires uh frontline you know really properly getting into the story and really understanding and talking to real people and and really seeing it for yourself. So I guess that's something that's that's immediately a bit different from what's you know political europe has done in the past. So
0: I knew you were uh you know not a Brussels hand. But I didn't realize you'd never been to Brussels before. What were your preconceptions about uh, about Brussels and the European Union when you were sort of thinking about applying for the job and you and sort of started to think about what it would be like to to report about European politics?
1: Yeah. So, uh, well, I, I had covered the European Union pretty extensively from from the from China. Actually, I was the reporter as a you know, more more junior reporter. I I covered uh, EU China trade and EU China relations. So I I had a sort of basic idea of the functioning and the structure and the non functioning of the European Union. I suppose. And so, so that wasn't uh, completely alien territory. Brussels itself was was brand new to me. Um, people I asked, mostly non-Belgians, a lot of people are quite mean about Brussels. I would say they say oh, it's so boring and oh, why would you want to live there? It rains all the time. So my ideas were uh, rain, Smurfs, chocolate, you know, the sort of very silly cliches. Tintin, uh, those are the kind of the headlines. And, and people I talked to didn't help uh, to dispel those kind of uh, uh, cliches. I did get some people, I had some very interesting discussions with actual Belgians. Um, one person described Belgium before I arrived. He said, look, it's it's geographically in the north of Europe, but it's culturally and uh, and temperamentally, often in the south, it's it's quite corrupt, it's quite uh inefficient, it's sort of it's it's kind of like Italy or Spain more than Germany or France. Is the kind of this is a Flemish friend of mine explaining it to me and explaining just how the the you know the underground economy works and things like this and the sort of levels of corruption and in Belgium itself and the kind of very interesting uh, relations between Flanders Wallonia and all the rest of it so I I love I love complexity and in you know for me it's very exotic coming to Belgium um, when I sold it to my wife who's from Shanghai and was also never been to Brussels I told her it's like uh, it's just like a mixture of Paris and Italy that's how I kind of sold it to her um, she hasn't been there yet. Even I've been there for a few months, and uh, I have to say, I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, I've been very lucky with the weather so far. I suppose it's been a very uh, mild uh, autumn. hasn't rained very much. Uh, I love the size. It's a very small city, really, um, but it's incredibly international. So, for me, I love the the, the, build, the old buildings, the the some you know the old houses. Uh, I love the food. Um, I love the people in general. I love the sort of edginess. It's a bit dark, Belgium, to me. I mean, yeah. Brussels in particularly. It's all all that history and all that kind of dark and kind of, you know, really tumultuous history is there. It's sort of in the fabric of the place. And then, you know, the colonial history and the more recent immigration and then the 2015, 2016 attacks and things like this, you know, it's all sort of there in the fabric. And, and I love that for me as a journalist, just sort of come around a corner, learn something about history uh, you know, to me, it's just absolutely fascinating. And, you know, look, it's an hour and 20 minutes on the train to Paris. Uh, it's an, it's two hours from London. Um, it's, it it's is a wonderful place. Us.
0: I, I grew up there, so um, I lived there for, for all my, almost all my childhood. Um, but um, in terms of political Europe, though, can you talk a bit about how, because I think Europeans are very solipsistic and we tend to think of ourselves as at the centre of the world. Um, how do you think, europe and the european union as a as a kind of political force is seen uh both by china but also around the rest of asia because that's something that you you have been sort of looking at in much more detail over the last um many years or is it, I... is it a concept in people's minds
1: yeah so my so my dear friend and mentor <coughs> martin wolf uh, when i resigned from the ft he said to me look you'll be utterly you'll go to you'll go to europe you'll be utterly perplexed because it's it's the land of uh it's the land of narcissism of small differences um and i just thought that was a wonderful description uh from Martin, uh, my from Asia, it is utter, utterly baffling and perplexing. It's it's the sort of epitome of democracy uh, in all its with all its faults and its benefits. For for China, it's I, I think for the Communist Party of China, they see it as this wonderful opportunity to divide and rule and to buy, you know they I think they have some real experts at understanding the those little narcissisms of small difference between all the countries and they play on them very successfully I think. Uh, so you get for the rest of Asia, I think it's 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 less about that divide and rule, divide and conquer kind of approach. It's more uh, baffling, I suppose. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing else that that compares to to the European Union. It's certainly not ASEAN, right? Uh, it's certainly not um, it's not the United States. It's decentralised yet somewhat you know unified in some weird ways and. And it's that classic, you know, again, cliche. Who do you call when you want to call Europe? I think people find it just baffling. And uh, I wouldn't say I'm too baffled. I'm getting a handle on, on all the little rivalries, on the route across the road. You know, you have the council and the and the Berlimont and the Commission and the Council, and they say mean things about each other to journalists in in private. It's just sort of, it's just sort of amazing. I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, but I can see how if you're coming from this part of the world in Asia, I'm, I'm right now in Hong Kong, when you're coming from Asia, you, you would it's just perplexing mostly and difficult to deal with unless your goal is to sort of split and, and kind of cause cause chaos and havoc. And China's quite good at that.
0: So, Jamil, if we look at the, the future of Europe, there's lots of political stories going on, which I'm sure you'll be getting your teeth into, whether it's the French elections, the new German government taking shape. Italy um, uh, you know is going to have to elect a new president and then we'll have elections and all' there's been lots of kind of endogenous stuff going on in different places mm-hmm. but many of the the big things which have changed Europe have come from the outside. Um, you know whether it was Lehman's Brothers collapsing, precipitating the 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 the, the Euro crisis in Europe, or uh, whether it was Russia's invasion of uh, Georgia and then Ukraine, and you know all the kind of stories that, were, that you you said that you're 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 starting out with um, at the moment on the Ukrainian border with Russia. Um, I think you know if we look at the next twenty or thirty years. A lot of the things that happen to Europe are going to come from, from Asia. It's obviously um, the centre of the, the world's economy now um, and will become ever more so um, as we go onwards. But also the Indo-Pacific is is becoming the central te- contested uh space between china and america um which is going to be driving a lot of the the kind of security and military aspects of of geopolitics what kinds of things are going on out there which could have profound consequences for europe you know both um, economically, you know, what, what do things like dual circulation and the sort of big ways that China is is changing its economic model, its attitude towards technology, some of these debates about decoupling, what do, what do you think they're going to mean for for Europe? What do some of these big security stories which are going on in Asia mean? I mean, if you if you were Sort of looking at some of the things which you've been experiencing and following very closely over the last few years, which of them do you think are underappreciated under by Europeans in terms of how profound they could profoundly they could affect the operating environment for Europe, the economic choices that we have, the political choices going forward?
1: Yeah, so I think that the rise of China is the story of our age in many ways. Obviously, I wouldn't think that since I spent my whole career focused on it. Um, but I'd, I'd say that it really it doesn't just impact Asia, it, it impacts the whole world. Whatever comes out of Beijing vis-a-vis global economic flows, uh Taiwan, even human rights issues within China, these all have a bearing and a and an influence, I think, on on the whole world. And Europe is really sort of at the moment stuck in between a U.S., a United States that has decided that China is a strategic, I you know, ideological competitor, really, and China is certainly even before that decided the U.S. is an ideological. Strategic rival, I suppose. Uh, the US, The European Union, though, and I think this is a reflection of the different positions of the member states. The European Union hasn't decided: is is China uh, a partner? Is it a competitor? Is it a strategic rival? It has its it, its policy now is all three, which is, to me, sort of again a reflection of the different interests and and positions of all the member states. But it's not. I believe, a tenable position over the longer term. One of the things that's been interesting to me in, arrive, you know, in arriving in Europe is the great interest in, in China in particular. Asia sort of generally, but not really. It's really China. So huge interest and very little expertise. It's really kind of interesting to me. I mean, you, you know China well, Mark, but... Uh, there aren't that many. I mean, you could probably you could probably give me a list, it wouldn't be very long, of the real Sinologists in, in Europe. And that includes the UK these days. And UK traditionally had so many great Sinologists be- because of its colonial history mostly and uh because of Hong Kong. But it it doesn't have them really anymore, or not many. The US still does. Many of the US, you know, US has this big critical mass of of really truly great Sinologists, many of them ethnically Chinese, many of them born in China. Uh, themselves, but but the US has a deep bench, and even countries like Australia have, I would say, you know, some quite good expertise. In Japan, obviously, Taiwan, and other places in Asia, you get some some really knowledgeable uh, expert people who who really study China, you know, speak very good Chinese, have lived in China a long time, and I would say are, are expert, uh, at least real specialists. And in Europe, you don't really have that so much, so. I think Europe in some ways is just sort of it's behind the curve in many ways and it's also missing all sorts of things just because it doesn't have that critical mass of expertise even within its diplomatic services uh, at the country level and at the at the union you know European Union level and it doesn't have it even in academia so and I think that's that's concerning and uh, when you talk about specific topics i mean it's it's as i say everything could you know the path that china's on right now is a path of conflict and confrontation with the west an ideologically driven path of conflict and uh, and confrontation. And I hope that that China pulls back from that, I'd say. And I hope that we don't end up in a in a hot war. Uh, but I I'm not optimistic about that actually. Uh, economically, I think China's turning inwards. China is also dealing with potential serious economic crises. Evergrand has just defaulted, the biggest real estate developer in China just defaulted. On its overseas debt in the last few, you know, this week, and that's a signal of things to come. I believe there's a very serious Im- imbalances in the financial system, in the in the overall economy because it's so reliant on debt and real estate development. Those are big, big issues that I think nobody in Europe has even knows about, <laughs> frankly. Uh, and it will have knock-on effects because it will mean they'll buy fewer cars, they'll buy fewer machines. You know, it's it's just going to have all sorts of effects. I think that many in Europe are not aware or awake to the fact that China is has a very explicit uh, import substitution plan for its economy to to totally replace all of the imports of machinery and uh, manufacturing equipment that Germany and one or two other places currently supply. Uh, so. I, I don't think that europe collectively has a handle on china it's too far away it's china europe sorry is so fixated on its little internal squabbles that it it can't lift its sights and there's this whole history of anti-americanism and quite sort of very deeply rooted of kind of you know america's a big bully and tells us what to do we got to get away from that it's been that's been very surprising for me just how deep that is on particularly on the left in in europe but but you know, kind of deeply entrenched in the mainstream, like, we will not be told what to do by America. So they end up being told kind of what to do by China, <laughs> you know, so, or at least getting into positions that are much more aligned with China, which, you know, let's be clear, does not, if, if Europe wants to be the, the sort of moral superpower, it kind of claims to be, it, it often doesn't end up in a
0: place that matches that, especially vis-a-vis China, I'd say. So it'd be good to talk about some of the, the- stories that have been in the news recently like lithuania and AUKUS. but before we do that you said earlier on that you thought that europe would struggle to maintain this triptych of of seeing china as a a partner a competitor and a systemic rival if you had to guess where it ends up which of those three courses do you think it will end up having to choose i mean i think just the
1: nature of the european union means it'll end up somewhere in the middle as probably probably its competitor with a bit of strategic, uh, sorry, a bit of systemic rival thrown in. I think that's because of what where China is headed. I think Europe will reluctantly end up in a, in a place that's much more similar to the United States eventually. And I think that'll be driven by actions taken by Xi Jinping and the Communist Party, be that around Taiwan, be that around Xinjiang, Hong Kong, all the things that Europe, you know, will, will find it very hard to condone or, or even to just sort of turn a
0: blind eye to? Should we just talk very briefly about these two big stories which have been making enormous waves um, in Europe? AUKUS obviously was a was a kind of really big deal. What did you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think AUKUS was one of these things where the handling of it was was pretty poor by probably the US and Australia and the UK. It allowed, you know, by 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 doing it in the way that they did, you know, these countries did it, they allowed it to sort of get bogged down and Anglo-French rivalry, and, and and to get sort of bogged down a, a bit into, you know, domestic French politics, and but I think so so handled uh, differently, you might you know those countries, UK, Australia, and and the US. Could have gotten more agreement, maybe more buy-in from from France and other parts of Europe. Maybe not, but uh, I think you know the U.S. has acknowledged that they handled it pretty poorly. They sort of outsourced it to the Australians, who uh, also handled it poorly. So you know, I think that was there's all that piece around around how it was sort of managed and communicated. In general, it's clear that things have been headed in that direction for quite a long time. Uh, that Australia, U.S. UK, Canada, Japan, India, you know South Korea, most countries in, on China's periphery are extremely concerned about China's extremely rapid military buildup, very aggressive posture in the region and frankly, globally. And there is an arm race that's going on and it's driven by China and You're going to get reactions to that, and the countries in the region are the most affected. But actually, given China's global ambitions, every country is ultimately affected. And you know, uh, so France is a is a Pacific nation, as they like to point out a lot. And again, better handled, perhaps France could have been more, better consulted, and might have even been brought in at some level on this, or might in the future still be brought in at some level into this. arrangement, or what? What this is the kernel, I think, of something bigger that's going to grow in the future. Okay, maybe
0: just briefly ask you one last question because it is in the news as we speak. Is this this dispute between China and Lithuania, which is very interesting um, the way that it's escalating? Because China is not just pushing back against Lithuania uh, directly for um, the moves which Lithuania did to to to, to rename it, its um, its representation in Taiwan, but Um, is also developing a sort of Chinese version of secondary sanctions against Lithuania and and going after other countries and uh, companies based in other countries and and trying to get them to stop doing business with with Lithuania. Um, Do you think that this is a a kind of important development? What do you think the EU should do about it?
1: I think this is an incredible escalation by China. I think that if you just step back and look at what what is going on or what is reportedly going on some you know these are from media reports which i have no reason to doubt i think they're probably fully accurate but if you look at what's going on china is saying to multinationals if you do business or or buy equipment or buy you know use suppliers in lithuania you can't sell in any longer into the Chinese market. Now that's effectively the same as the US uh, sanctions on companies that want to do business with Iran, except the difference is that Iran is trying to develop nuclear weapons. And Lithuania just changed the name of its representative office in Taipei uh, I mean, you know, look at the difference. So, you know, anyone who tries to draw an equivalence here between what China's doing and what other countries do when it comes to sanctions is is so far off the mark. I mean, that's just a ludicrous suggestion that these are in some way equivalent. China is saying that if you purely, you know, it's up to any country, uh, it's the internal affairs of any country, what they call another another country or another region, or how they deal diplomatically with another country or another region. And what what China is saying is that if you do something we don't like, use some language we don't like, then we are going to not just sanction you directly, we're going to stop anyone else from doing business with your country. I mean, it's an incredible escalation. Uh, it's not for me to tell the European Union what to do about it. But uh, if you look at what has been proposed, uh, I think it's quite interesting some of the what we're calling the hammer that uh, that, that the European Union, uh, that, that, that is being proposed at the moment. This idea that counter sanctions without uh, unanimous vote in the council could be imposed uh, by by uh, you know the the commission and by the European Union. That is a really interesting proposal. It, it's came out this week. We got a scoop on it actually. Politico playbook broke the scoop of the, the what what was in that document on on Monday, and it was announced formally on Wednesday. And there's some very interesting details of how the european union might be able to respond collectively to an attack on an economic attack like this on on one member state and that would not need you know the most important salient point of that about that is that it would need a simple majority in the council it wouldn't need uh, unanimity is, as you'd pretty much need now, which would which would neutralize China's ability to pick off Hungary or Malta or Cyprus as it, as it is so effective at doing in the fut- in the past, right. So anything that China didn't like when it came to sort of EU-wide resolutions and, and decisions, it could it could pick off the weaker member states with you know threats or blandishments or bribes in various ways.
0: And that's why this, this proposal is is structured like this. And if you're all interested in the scoop behind the scoop, um, you can listen to uh, an earlier episode of this podcast where I spoke with my colleagues, Yonatan Hakenbash and Pavel Tsefka about it. And we published a, a, a report on uh, economic coercion, the idea of a European defense instrument. Uh, about a year ago, and um, I've been working very, very closely with the with the Commission and different member states on these issues. We'll put up links to all of those things on on the website. We're unfortunately running out of time, Jamil, but I've got to ask you one more question, which is, what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
1: Yeah, so right now I'm reading. Uh, lots of time to read because I'm sitting in hotel quarantine in Hong Kong. Uh, I'm just finishing The Guns of August, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner from the 60s by Barbara Tuchman, really brilliant book about the opening days of World War One, very relevant to my new home in, in Belgium and in Brussels. Uh, a brilliant book. I re- highly recommend it for anyone who hasn't read it. It's uh, you know, just really uh, helpful for me to understand some of that history I alluded to earlier. Uh, the other book I'm just starting is Red Roulette by Desmond Shum, which is uh, close to my heart from, from my, my previous life. Uh, I actually know Desmond um, a little bit personally. and uh, no no I knew his story his backstory for quite a long time, and uh, it's good to see this book come out and just uh, really gives an amazing insight into into the inner workings of sort of high-level corruption inside the chinese communist party. and it and it accords with all of my experiences. And I can certainly vouch for its veracity. Uh, at least in 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 my
0: experience it rings perfectly true uh, so far the bits I've read which is just yeah, just starting on it great well it's been wonderful talking to you Jamil I'm personally really really excited about the the andolini era beginning um, at, at politico I think that um, you have shown throughout your career, an incredible flair for for uh, for news and for bringing stories to life. And I, I think that the European political story, um, I can't think of anyone better to tell it. So I'm very, very excited to see what you're doing. Hope we can get you back on the podcast when you've uh, managed to to get around Europe a bit more. And um, it'd be really interesting to see how your views have evolved um, uh, over time. Uh, but for now, um, As I said earlier, we'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you've used to to listen to this on. And uh, we'd be really grateful if you could also give us a positive review and a five-star rating on that platform. But for now, from Jamil Andalini and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Haupenthal and our editor is Marlene Riedel.